people and bad ones too. You are listening to Feel Free to Deviate, the podcast about people, their careers, and their relationships with success. This episode features Dr. Kei Atsuki. We met when I first moved to the Netherlands so long ago. We were both students in the same Dutch class. Her title is Associate Professor in International Development Studies at Utrecht University, but she tells me that she views her role as bringing awareness and trying to find a bridge for communication between interested parties. That is to say that she is an intermediary or a socio-eco-diplomat. Well, she didn't say that, but I'm saying it now. She also trains eager young minds how to do this as well. The bottom line is that she does way more than most of us to make a difference in the world, but don't let that bring you down. We're all playing our part, and sadly, there is virtually no way for any of us individually to impact the big picture. It's a good talk. You should be excited to listen. I want to share that I've already noticed that it's getting lighter every single night, and I love it. Other than that, I don't have much to report. I'd like to mention that if you have any feedback or questions about Feel Free to Deviate, you can send them to me. The email address is mail at feelfreetodeviate.com. You can also contact me via social media at feelfreetodeviate. I'm on Instagram and Facebook, though. I sometimes don't notice when I'm contacted there. If I don't get back to you quickly, please don't be offended. I'm probably looking at a headphone review or something. Oh, and I'd like to have an economist on the show. Maybe you know an economist. Let me know. I'd like to make something, something happen. Okay, enough of that nonsense. This is my conversation with the good Dr. K. Atsuki. I remember once a long time ago when I was in Ecuador or something on the on the, the top of the mountains, there was a radio station that they interviewed me. Well, I'm sure their setup was a little bit uh, more <laughs> high tech than this. There were probably fewer blankets involved. <laughs> it was a bit more mobile, actually, the whole thing. Oh, for real? Yeah, like a mobile in the sense that they can move. It's not like a setup studio. Well, this is the super professional studio. <laughs> This is where the magic happens. <laughs> if Marlene knew that we were doing this in these conditions, she would be mortified. Oh, really? <laughs> you didn't fucking, you left the sheets up. Like, yeah, they blocked the sound, you know. I know it looks like some kind of a low-rate laundry room, but it, it, it makes it sound a little a bit better. professional studio. Yeah. I always call you K. Yeah. And I know that Europeans always say K Atsuke. Yeah. But isn't it actually Atsuki K? Yeah. So what do you prefer? <laughs> okay, Atsuki is okay because that's what I'm known for. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't have to be the Japanese way of right. saying it. That's cool. I just, yeah. I, I just don't know how people feel about that. And then K is is good. For Dutch people, it's always Kai. They uh, they always pronounce it wrong. But then it's a Dutch pronunciation of my spelling. Of, sure, sure. Yeah. But K is fine. I used to spell my name K-A-Y because we can choose whatever way we spell in English letters. Right. Right? Because I have my Japanese uh, name. Yeah. Went to high school in Canada. Yeah. Oh. And they started to um, say, are you Catherine? And it's your K. Like, oh. Because oh. I used to spell my name K-A-Y to facilitate the pronunciation. But then I decided, no, I'm Japanese of yeah. Japanese origin, and I grew up in Japan, so I'm going to spell it in Japanese way. 
Now I, I, did, I never thought I would end up in the Netherlands. So now I'm like a guy, guy. <laughs> <laughs> that's not my name. That's not. But that that's good. To, that's good to hear that you never thought that you would you would end up here because that's <laughs> on my list of things. How did you end up in the Netherlands? <laughs> and why did you choose Wageningen? And why? Did, anyway, I have like a little intro, and then we'll just see what happens. Keiatsuke. Yes. It's, yes, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a long time, and I know very little about what you do, but it sounds like you are a force of good in the world. <laughs> it also sounds like you know a lot of stuff that most people don't think about on a day-to-day basis, and maybe there's a reason for that. How do you introduce yourself when, when you're oh, at the it? school and people say, oh, what do you do? Oh, yeah, that was difficult, actually. <laughs> My daughter came. That she had to explain the job of the parents or she had to present. Mm-hmm. So for her father, it's very easy. You know, he makes sculpture. For mother, oh, I've seen you only doing blah, blah, blah in front of the computer. Or occasionally you disappear in Africa or <laughs> Brazil. Or but then, uh, what do you do? What are you? No? And then I say, well, I'm a sociologist. I'm a geographer nowadays. Nice. I teach at university, so you can maybe say I'm a youth also for Grote Kinder or something and like youth that. For Grote Kinder. <laughs> yeah. That, mean, that means yeah. a, te- that's a teacher of small children. <laughs> yes. For, for big children. Oh, big children, sorry. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So at the end of the day, she just uh, took the official title from the, from the website. From the website, <laughs> I hope to send, or associate professor from the Utrecht University. Yeah. But how I identify myself is, uh, yes, well, primarily development sociologist and geographer nowadays shifted a bit. I was originally trained as a sociologist. Which university is it? Utrecht. Okay. But you went to Wageningen. For my study, yeah. Yeah. I remember, I feel like you were finishing that up. Yeah. When I, I was in Rotterdam, I moved to Rotterdam because I met my husband, or boyfriend, when I was finishing up in Wageningen, yeah, and he was already working in Rotterdam, so I decided to move here, move in with him. Okay. So that's why I started to live in Rotterdam then. Okay, so you studied sociology in Japan as well. Why did you decide to go to graduate school in Wageningen? Ah, so that's a very long story. But I was studying in Japan. I was interested in sustainable development as a concept. So when I was studying was the the end of 90s, there was a book I read about development versus conservation, how to reconcile. And then I got very interested in that issue. You know, this is very important, but not many people are studying in Japan at that time, primarily about rainforest. You know, in Japan, there are lots of sort of uh, development of, for example, countryside or small cities in combination with forest conservation. And there were lots of very Japanese philosophy behind it, but then it's not really linked to the global issues. So I wanted to do something out of Japan, but then explore the possibilities of sustainable development. So that was a motivation to study the social aspects of how people engage with their environment and the management and conservation while they try to develop themselves. So what happened was there was a kind of small advertisement in a university where I went in Tokyo looking for research assistant to go to Japanese agriculture in the Brazilian Amazon. You know, it was a research topic. 
they were looking for like a student assistant who could go to the Amazon, interview Japanese immigrants who were practicing kind of Japanese way of farming, like a combination of different crops. And then they kind of calculate how much money they can make from the rotational agriculture without deforesting everything and, you know, put cattle or something. I applied for the position because it sounded very interesting. And then, uh, yeah. And also you get to go to Brazil. Yay, the Amazon. (laughs) Very curious. I've never been here. So I went and then I liked it. It was so different from everything I knew. It's a bit like, yeah, I mean, I grew up in a place where, you know, Japan is an island. So there's no frontier. Like Lego cities, no? Like people go somewhere and then just build their cities kind of situation. You don't see it. It's all very organized. So I just got very attracted to Brazil. So I stayed actually after the student assistantship. I just stayed stay. in in Brazil. They have an expression "fica ficando," like a stay staying. Mm-hmm. Like you know, you don't plan things that much, but then you just stayed. I did an internship, but I had to get some income. So then I did the little student jobs in Brazilian university. I looked for some opportunities there. And then uh, I stayed. And for, so I worked for a Brazilian NGO, actually, at that time for two years. What happened was that I also started to get interested in how things work, trying to work with the farmers and the forests while trying to get money out of the situation. Also from the for, government or from, from the government, from, other from the World Bank, for from oh, okay. the, all these uh, donors. Yeah. So there was a big politics behind those sustainable development agenda that I started to notice while working for the NGO. And what happened was that I wanted to study about it. So I read another book about how to study development. How to study development. Development. I didn't know that book existed. So the whole problem about, for example, deforestation in the world is that people want to develop, right? That like people want to develop economy, develop society, the cities that don't become compatible with keeping the forest. So then it always becomes the problem. If I try to do something about it, then you have to kind of get the money to do projects. And then that's also a bit... Of the whole industry of development started to emerge in your mm-hmm. so it's not only ideal but you have to learn how the politics of development actually works in relation to conservation so some people study politics of conservation also and then i got interested in studying about it a little bit and the book it's called battlefields of knowledge it's about the development projects whether you try to conserve the forests by giving jobs to smallholders who used to slash and burn. Yeah, yeah. There, you encounter lots of different, actually, fights between experts and farmers and, you know, that people uh-huh. try to actually uh, negotiate. That process is the development, so not you have to be richer or you don't want to be richer, but then it's more like the negotiations that bring a development, and then that's uh-huh. how we have to actually understand. And I thought it was pretty cool way of looking at the <laughs> That never even occurred to me. <laughs> no, the world of, uh, yeah, how the world should progress or how the world should develop. 
So then I looked up who were doing those research, and they were in Wageningen University. Okay, right on. <laughs> of course they were. <laughs> and they had a sociology department. Now they changed the name, but then at that time it's called Rural Development Sociology Group of uh, Wageningen. Well, Wageningen University actually is known for more agricultural sciences. Okay. So social sciences department is not that super big. So there were kind of small group of researchers focusing on those development as a field. Mm -hmm. So development projects, you can kind of really study about who are involved, what kind of knowledge is generated, what kind of contestations happen. And I wanted to be a part of that group. I thought it was kind of interesting way of understanding how we think things should be. And then that's not actually the way that we should actually implement our ideal because that's not going to work at the end of the day. So that is why I came to Wageningen in the first place. And then I wrote the PhD thesis there, the dissertation about forest conservation ideal in the Amazon and how people themselves who live there and actually deforest have their own logic of doing it and how actually Western forest conservation idea mm -hmm. is going to be backlashed because we are not understanding very well how people are actually uh, dealing with the situation. So the, and the my message was that we should actually try to really engage with those destroyers of the forest that we don't like them, but then... They're part of the equation, exactly. so you need to engage them. Yeah. yeah, okay. So that was the kind of uh, first work I did. And uh, yeah... Afterwards, I went back to Japan for a while to do the similar things, how to really understand the people who have a different ideas about development, let's say. Yeah. Yeah. Is right. that when is that when Marlene and I visited? Yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. In Tokyo, yeah. Still before kids. Before kids. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So at that time, we were, I was moving around a lot also. There yeah. was more liberty. When you went to Valkening, and that's when you met Dawa. Mm-hmm. Your Dutch man friend. <laughs> oh yeah, that was uh, unplanned. So that was the problem. Yeah, yeah. That usually that's usually how yeah. it is. It's not on the checklist. Exactly. Meet Dutch person and spend the rest of your <laughs> life with them. Yeah, indeed. Actually, because after well, I finished my study. So from Brazil, I came to Wageningen, and then I, I was actually intending to go back to Brazil because uh -huh. I, I at that time my head was really that you know Brazil is my base yeah I didn't I didn't think about going back to Japan but then you know oh I, I like Brazil so I'm just going back with this degree I even actually applied for some jobs in Brazil okay. with the, in the universities yeah because some some people invited me to apply that ah oh, when you get the PhD you can apply for you know like a professor uh, positions mm -hmm. That was a bit of accident that I met Dawa. He, he already left and worked in Rotterdam, but I left in his mother's house. Uh, right, Yes, right. I, I, I was I, renting a room. <laughs> That's how I met him, because he, he yeah. visited his mother sometimes, and then uh, mm -hmm. we chatted. Yeah, right. Well, it's good that he visits his mom. I don't visit my mom. So I knew the future mother-in-law uh, earlier yeah. <laughs> that helps that's definitely nice you know what you're getting into yeah, yeah. brazil became a bit not an option then immediately because he had his life being built up in in rotterdam as an artist i mean yeah. it's not that super easy also but then i also immediately couldn't stay in the netherlands because i didn't find a 
good job that will give me a work permit. Right, so right, then, right. you know, that becomes a little bit bureaucratic. Oh, I know. A situation where I thought of staying in the Netherlands, but then I couldn't immediately get the job while. Yeah, my Dutch partner's income was too low to yeah, keep yeah, me yeah. to sponsor me, so sure. then I couldn't get a family uh, reunion either. So that's how I decided to just go back to Japan and uh, see if uh, any job opportunity will come up. While I didn't want to be out of you know job, so then you got to do something. Yeah, so then I got invited to apply for a position as a research associate in Tokyo. In okay, then I would just apply there. I stayed for three years, I think. Okay, was it that long? Yeah, goes by fast though, right? Yeah, yeah, because actually I realized how difficult it was to find a job when you are out of the country. Ne? I mean, I I kept on looking in the yep. Netherlands. But like you say, you know, you need a connection or you it, need a uh, bit of the kind it of... It helps. It certainly helps. Yeah. Or kind of to the interaction, so... But with academia, is like you must have had some some sort of connection. Yeah, yeah. So I had uh, still colleagues in Wageningen. I knew people who went to different universities. But the, at the end of the day, I found it not so easy. But at the same time, you also want to build up something in Japan just for a convenience. But then yeah. I thought, okay, maybe I will do a project. So at that time, the the United Nations University was not so keen on developing some research agenda in Brazil, but then they wanted to do a lot of things in Africa. That okay. was uh, the time when the whole international development industry was gearing towards Africa, partly because Africa was the kind of considered to be the last frontier of sure. uh, yeah. development, no? Yeah. The, and America. Big investment opportunities exactly. in Africa. <laughs> no, but it's true. The <laughs> of course World it's Bank true. <laughs> and uh, all this uh, big United Nations, everybody, uh, and Japanese government was also China. I mean, you know, everyone was kind yeah, that, of going. That was the big thing that I heard that half the investors in, in Africa are giant Chinese yeah, interests. Chinese and, interests. And the whole discourse was, yeah, and American and Asian countries are relatively okay but and also a lot of exploitation already had happened sure why, <laughs> like why, let's start clean <laughs> <laughs> why let's see and even brazil actually started to go heavily in africa that they started oh, really? to invest in uh, mining industries uh -huh. in uh, portuguese-speaking countries of africa like mozambique and angola there was a kind of very new dynamics that also led me to Africa as a researcher about development and yeah. conservation. So the last decade, I was pretty much in African uh, context to do the similar things. Like about stu studying stuff, or studying. are you actually going there? And uh, both. Both. Yeah, because, yeah, maybe I should explain how my study works, but then development studies or sociology is not so theoretical, per se. It's more applied the biggest attraction for me is that, you know, you have to have this very empirical understanding of what people do. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the logic that I want to understand why people do the way they do when everything else says that they shouldn't. For example, farmers using contaminated water or right, right, that yeah. kind of thing. I mean, they have to do it maybe out of necessity. They I, do it with it. I think that's the only explanation. Yeah. Like, why would you use contaminated yeah. water unless you had to? Yeah. <laughs> but then, you know, if you start following the change of how that happens yeah. from the ground up, then it becomes more real for me than 
sort of reading documents and you know kind of only talking to the half of the the uh, those who said well we didn't do anything wrong right, kind right, of, uh, right. situations so there are lots of instances that you have to actually um, go there and talk to people who are not represented in the dominant discourses that's why yeah you have to go so then i started to also go to mozambique quite a lot in uh, ghana kenya all these countries that started to really uh, become a hopes of new investments and development yeah. projects that's actually how i encountered the job advert from utrecht university about mozambique they were looking for somebody who could speak portuguese because okay. i could because i did who study in brazil, brazil. For, for a long time <laughs> <laughs> so i can speak portuguese and they wanted somebody part time yeah. and i just had a baby then so then i need i didn't want to work fully sure but then part time will be great part time is nice uh, two days a week or something or even it was not two days a week at the end of the day when they asked me if i could go to Mozambique and then they say well you don't have to work almost anything in the Netherlands just please take like two weeks and then go to Mozambique and, do and the then yeah. do the field work and I say yeah that's fine as long as you know my partner says it's okay yeah <laughs> so that's how I got the job in Utrecht that was also a little bit connected to my situation then that's so you're that. still going and doing field work yeah, from time well, to time yeah, yeah. I mean, at least after the end of 2019, I cannot go anymore because oh, yeah, of Corona. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a bummer. Yes. But then uh, before Corona, it was getting almost too much that I was complaining a lot that I shouldn't go. Like multiple times per year? Per like year, yeah. Five, six five times, times per year. And each time like 10 days or two weeks. So then it was getting yeah, a bit too much. Yeah, that is kind of a lot. And with the small kids. So yeah. um, I had to rethink how how, how to work. Now you don't even have to think about it. You just can't do it. Exactly. So Corona was a, actually a little bit of blessing, actually, for our relationship. Would, let's not say that. <laughs> yeah, because it was getting a very... If I was forced not to travel, then uh, I just had to uh, endure. But I also started to find a new way of working, eh? Because then I started to kind of pay people in uh, in that country. So you pay I them? Yeah. So I started to think like, okay, if I, I cannot go, I just have to have my extension in places where I want to do my research, right? Okay. So then those who don't have to travel. So I started to kind of employ people, let's say in Mozambique or in Brazil, then they do research with me. So I do it remotely. Yeah. And then they do it for their master thesis or PhD thesis, oh. like a student. And then I'm like, yeah, no, I understand. I, I actually understand how things can work without traveling. Because mm -hmm. at the end of the day, maybe not even Corona, but because of the, this uh, whatever, don't fly so often sure, campaign sure, for sure, sustainability. Sure. That that's your field, the sustainability. Yeah. Anyway, I, so that's one of my questions, yes. how you reconcile these sorts of things. Looking at sustainability on different levels, I'm wondering, to, to have all this knowledge, is it just incredibly frustrating? Most people just read a, an article with a headline that says, this is bad, we're running out of this resource, yeah. or this country is being exploited for its minerals, or this is happening, or this country doesn't have the infrastructure for X, Y, or Z. And you are actually on the ground in some of these places, learning the stuff, 
digging deep into the source, not just the headlines. So you have actual knowledge and maybe even theories on how to make the situation better. This is a long and sprawling kind of question. Do you notice improvements? Do you notice things getting better? Do you think that things are becoming more sustainable? And let's just start with that. Hmm. <laughs> like, do you notice changes? Maybe yes and no. Because some places, the people are becoming more conscious themselves, no? And also we learn, we like uh, researchers or project managers, I don't know, like all these uh, professionals yeah. learn how to engage or how to talk to to people in the environment that are in question. Actually, if you are in the Netherlands, I mean, so much environmental consciousness has risen in the past years, then you will notice that, that you know, the things are changing, maybe in the, let's say, kind of more sustainable direction. But the problem is there are lots of instances that the very sort of quest for sustainable development or environmental consciousness also, you know, kind of stabilizes the status quo. Yeah. It, it does, it builds on the inequality, it builds on the kind of normative image of sustainability that I started to doubt in the Amazon in the first place, that right. you can't tell people to conserve forests when they have totally different Exactly, that's, that's what it sounds, yeah. yeah. For example, the, the Brazil once went through so-called social environmentalism, that they really talked about how to reconcile the people's livelihoods or how people make living with the, the environmental sustainability in such a way that the people are also... They can integrate it into yeah, their lives. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah. Or they, their logic is sort of incrementally, maybe if you are really used to chopping down all the forests and then put the, the cattle, then it takes time yeah. for these people to change. To stop chopping yeah. down the forest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but then there has to be some kind of alternatives that are equally right. profitable and attractive. Sure. So we have to come up with also together what will work. Mm -hmm. So that is the kind of process we were thinking, but then it just takes so much engagement. Perhaps it's, it frustrates people in all sides. I don't know. So, you know, some like a president like Bolsonaro, like, you know, the Trump of the tropics. <laughs> the Trump of the tropics. Yeah, he, he got elected <laughs> and he just abolished all these efforts that in the previous years. Then oh, he, right, because it's just too its too much effort. To, yeah, he, to... he just, uh, you know, encouraged all the cattle ranchers to just de develop the area. Right. <laughs> That's the best way to do it. Sure. And then, uh, well, shut up all the foreigners. It's our territory. Yeah. But I mean, in a way, he's right, though, that like, what do the outsiders yeah. know, except for people like you who yeah. are actually going in there and doing research. Exactly. And there are a lot of armchair, armchair ecologists. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Many of the constituents within the Amazon region voted for him, which means that, you know, he's got the political support. Yeah. And it is hard then, without understanding that kind of political dynamics, to say something about, you know, how to conserve the forest, why the, everyone got so shocked about the, you know, Amazon burning and, uh, mm -hmm. you know, the worst deforestation rate in, like, last year was the, the worst. I mean, I guess that makes sense. Every year would be the worst, right? 
No, when the leftist was there, that they also was not the angel, but then they did try. The they were former, making efforts. Yeah, former government was a little bit better. So then the deforestation rate stabilized quite uh, a bit. Okay, okay. So that is why it's so scandalous that, you know, now, now that it's skyrocketing. Yeah, that's my point in a sense that if you start trying to push too much of one way of, you know, forest is important, so you have to conserve it, then there will be a backlash like what we are seeing now in Brazil. And then we have to be prepared for that, or we have to be actually wise to think about what's, what's the best way to engage with people who don't have the same ideas. Yeah, And then it's the same with... Yeah, in a way, in the Netherlands now, everything is like a renewable energy. We have to switch to electric cars, but then there are lots of ramifications of, of, there of, of that, not within the Netherlands, but then also in but everywhere, everywhere globally. So I think uh, one of the new projects I have is about conflicts that happen around the minerals and the natural gas productions that are expanding in Mozambique. The things are all exported here. Yeah, you know that the minerals that you need for lithium batteries for batteries, for, yeah, of course, or natural gas that is uh, it's pretty valuable these yeah, days. Yeah, but then you know, you know, these people in Mozambique, for example, are never going to have electric cars or never going to have those those lives. Certainly so not then in the short term. No, and then they are going to have all this kind of pollution, displacement, yeah, and and those are kind of known, but then we don't know exactly how to deal with it. And my feeling is, yeah, overall, maybe, yeah, we are talking about how to save the planet but then you know we have to or my role at this moment i seem seriously think that how to think about not to sacrifice anybody or any parts of the world mm -hmm. to have this general global sustainability you know because that's the whole problem that the one idea is going to be like, okay, we have to have a sustainable planet or sustainable development while yeah, those small, small issues about people suffering in, because of that, but then in yeah, yeah. very far away places, we don't want to know about it. I don't even think that it's that we don't want to know about it. You can hear about it and read about it and think it's horrible, <laughs> which I do, but it's also... I'm greedy and I want to be comfortable. And whether you're in my situation or a lithium miner in Mozambique, y you are greedy and you want to be comfortable and you can fault someone for that, but mm -hmm. it's just the way it is. It's just the way it is. And, and you know, you want to make the best of whatever your situation is. If you don't truly understand the conditions of being a miner, you can't truly empathize with, with the miners of Mo Mozambique. Yeah. You know, you can be what they call a bleeding heart or whatever, yeah. but you can never really understand yeah. until you understand the true horrors of what it, <laughs> what it's like to be there. And so then you're in the position where you say, okay, well, I'm going to do everything that I can to make every single industry better. I'm going to stop eating meat. I'm going to stop eating, consuming dairy because <laughs> cows are bad. I'm going <laughs> to... I'm going to I'm going to stop using lithium batteries cuz lithium batteries are bad but are they bad or are they good because they're also decreasing air pollution oh, yeah. in, in my city yeah. which is true maybe not so much in Rotterdam cuz we have the harbor and it's just it's it's hard to wrap your head around it yeah. and it's hard to a friend of mine was telling me recently that you know, he's a flexitarian. He's trying to eat a minimal amount of meat. And that's great. I, I mean, I think that that's great for health and for, for your wallet and for lots of different reasons. And he was 
saying that the awareness of vegetarianism is higher now than it ever has been. But how does that really impact the meat industry? It's not like meat production is going down because people are more aware. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but yeah. But then that's that's exactly why I think it's good not to be also how do you say, kind of blindly justice warriors or sustainability yeah. warriors, you know, because then, so that's what I'm trying to say, that not to sacrifice anybody, meaning every change or transformation has to be incremental in a sense that we have to have an alternatives. Uh -huh. So let's say, okay, let's stop eating meat. There are lots of farmers who have been sustainably it's, producing It's part of meat. the chain. Yeah, and then you can't, for example, well, in my view, just because, okay, well, all of the sudden cows are bad, then you start, you know, campaigning against everything. I mean, there is a very sort of, yeah, mechanical meat industry that I don't agree with. Of course, it's gross. But then uh, in Japan or in many countries that the cattle have been very important, for example, culturally also, there are farmers who have been building their, not only about money and profits, yeah, but yeah. then the whole life around it, then, then we have to understand those people. Or if they have to change, you know, we have to also understand how they these people want to change in negotiation with all sure. these other demands. So I think everything is a bit like that. Miners also, like, you know, I'm not saying that we should stop mining because then the miners would lose jobs. But then what we want to know is that what kind of changes these people want so that the, the whole industry can actually think about how to adjust sure. or give alternatives. Because there are lots of instances. But it's not just the people, right? It's like the... The industry itself mm -hmm. needs to adjust. Yeah, Like exactly. instead of just thinking, I drill oil, I mine lithium or yeah. whatever. <laughs> no, they do like that at the moment. Yeah. So the the whole logic is that, okay, you know, ah, now we have a big reserve in uh, in uh, offshore in, in Tanzania or Mozambique. So then we go and then we start drilling. And then there are lots of sort of ramifications that they started to create a huge protest or even insurgency now in the whole region because the, the people are pretty angry at, yeah. at how they know the profits are being made and shipped out of the country while, you know, they just are labor and they work, but then they don't get much of the benefits. Mm -hmm. So then the people are becoming more and more aware that, you know, something is not quite right. We are not in the colonial times that, you know, the white people come and exploit everything and go away and that's normal. It's not normal, which is a progress in sure. itself because yeah. people notice right. that it's not right. So you just have to think about also then, yeah, in a way, it's a very simple question, how to make everybody happy. Very simple question. <laughs> Very simple. Yes. Very. So that's what I'm kind of trying to do. Look into what's happening. Mm -hmm. So then a frontier between those, okay, let's dig the mineral that is needing for the sustainable development of the world while the people's livelihoods are being compromised. So then we have to actually find a way that these people also can benefit or should benefit in, in in the way that is not being done at this moment. Right. Are there more benefits to, to, to that level of society? So the protests are happening, which is good, I think. Okay. You know, so for the industry, it's very bad. Well, they could stand to lose it's a little a bit. Conflict. <laughs> it's, it's a conflict. But I don't think conflicts are bad, to be extremely honest, because that shows that, you know, people have their own agency and they say, 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 happens, says, right? yeah, to me, that's positive. 
actual changes, yeah, the regulations a little bit, you know, for example, obliging industry to to just go and start digging, but then, you know, inform consent and, you know, involve those who will be uh, affected mm-hmm. from the beginning, from the planning. And, you know, there are lots of kind of rulings about it. And then there are lots of talks about it. So that's not a bad thing that people talk about it. Now, the real change, I think it's difficult to really uh, say, you know, what is a good example, or I'm also not that fan of talking about best practices because people yeah. start kind of window dressing everything. People like the best. Yeah, of course. And then, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I find it uh, also a bit too simple. That's the kind of my kind of science. Then the development sociology or development studies is that uh, we try to find the optimal solution in that real empirical context, so not idealistically bringing in something mm-hmm. or labeling conflicts as problems, but then more like, you know, how people are actually manifesting their wishes so that we kind of try to understand and then bring into the industry or the government who doesn't really want to listen. I find myself increasingly a bit playing an intermediary role perhaps. And is then, that frustrating yeah. or do you do you feel no, like I you're you're getting somewhere? I find it exciting actually because before I didn't really consciously think about, you know, bridging the gaps. Yeah. But then now I feel that is something that perhaps we can do. Because to um, explain it in different way, like you say the armchair academics. I think I say armchair ecologist. Ecologist. But whatever, academic too. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) that's the image people have also. And then many, actually, I I can't say who, but then, you know, it's a bit, there are lots of colleagues who don't, who stop going to the field as they become a big professor. They're comfortable. That's That's the thing thing to do. but But that's what everybody does. That's what I mean. It's like, it's easy to be comfortable. Yeah. And it's easy to think about your own needs yeah. or wants or desires. Yeah. Then that I really, uh, yeah, find it not right in the sense that you lose touch, I think. Yeah. And then that's something that I really want to avoid in my work. I mean, uh, being in the field is very important and try to bridge, try to talk the language that both size or multiple size understand Mm -hmm. and then kind of try to uh, find a solution to the problem for example if deforestation is the problem you can't denounce one party right it's like one problem at a time yeah also instead of like i'm going to solve the issue no the entire country you have to solve specific problems yeah 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 because everything has a context yeah and have people different kinds of people involved with different cultural backgrounds or beliefs or, you know, sometimes things are very religious also, and then you can't, you know, rationally solve it, but then still you have to talk or try to at least understand what kind of thinking behind. Because like all these Amazonian farmers who deforest, Mm -hmm. they say, it's a very Calvinist way of thinking that, you know, you have to work the land. Yeah. Protestant work Exactly. Yeah. If they don't give them any money, it doesn't lead to any accumulation. So they have to chop it down. And then uh, the land property gives uh, value. The cattle you put has a value. So then... How can you argue with value? Yeah. (laughs) And then they are very religious people. 
I don't know that this really matters. You were talking about Calvinism. And then I said Protestant work ethic. But aren't aren't Brazilians predominantly Catholic? Not not anymore. No? Well, predominantly, yes. Perhaps still. I don't know, statistically speaking. Yeah. But uh, Brazil is the biggest evangelical country in the Western Hemisphere now. Oh, I didn't realize that. The big... The well, they're a huge country. Yeah. <laughs> like a... For example, Assembly of God or a a Universal Church of God, they are all Brazilian uh, Uh, denominations that are exported exported to African countries. Sure. You got to increase the membership. It's kind of very big uh, export products at the moment, I think. Yeah, but uh, for example, Bolsonaro and all these sort of authoritarian presidents also uh, come from the very religious base. It's a bit like uh, how Trump's, you know, the the supporters are also white, very religious. A lot of the supporters are, which I don't understand why they follow him, because I don't, I mean, that guy doesn't believe in anything. You're going to tell me that he believes in God? There's no oh, way. He does. I don't think he does. <laughs> I think he believes in. He he's knows that those way. people tend to like him, yeah. so he's like, "Yeah, they're cool. That's cool. I'll <laughs> say whatever I have to say to get those people to follow to to keep liking me." Yeah, but I, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to talk about him. No, <laughs> no. But I mean, what I'm trying to say is that we can't underestimate the power of the the religious doctrines yeah, behind no, I mean, how what people do. It is historically. <laughs> Pretty major thing in the world. <laughs> yeah, but then I'm kind of surprised how people forget, you know, when we talk about forest conservation or like how people build their lives in relation to big investments or yeah. big development projects that we forget about the influence of how people have strong beliefs in something the way they do. Yeah. So that's why we have to understand it. But then, you know, it's when we, for example, talk about those issues, then it becomes government, maybe NGOs, uh, private companies, yeah. uh, universities, but then we don't talk about churches or we don't talk about the no, other, you know? I don't think about churches pretty no. much ever. <laughs> but I started to also recognize in many places, like, uh, yeah, people don't say it in a very logical ways, but then the way they do things are kind of backed by religious or or church as an institution almost, yeah. you know, that where they get political messages or where they sure, get sure, information sure. Okay. about how, yeah, they can get a job or how they can get money. It all comes from like Sundays, everyone goes to church yeah, yeah, yeah. and the pastor is it's from... It's part of the community. It's yeah, <laughs> and sometimes pastor is from the political party. Oh, or yeah. so, You see, then and there are lots of connections that um, I think we cannot underestimate. So those are the things that, uh, well, so when I go to the field, I always go to church with my collaborators oh, yeah? from the village that, I guess that makes sense. Yeah, to understand how, sure. how, how, I was actually pretty surprised that all the political messages are actually blasted in, in church service at the end of the services. <laughs> and by the way, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> vote for your oh, pastor. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously. <laughs> So I was a bit like, hmm, okay, this is how it works. You never know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's a, that's why I like also to go to the field. It's cool that you are actually hands-on about it and you have some perspective. Yeah, I guess the main thing I was wondering is, is it just unbearably frustrating to to know what you know and study what you study and then look at the way everything is? But it sounds like you deal with it pretty well. You know, you yeah, put things because in at, the, at, the, at the end of the day, everyone, no, yeah, even if you don't agree 
that people are wanting some kind of change. Everyone is kind of dreaming of his or her own utopia, right? Like and having a, you know, I want this kind of job, I sure. want this kind of life, a house, a car. In a way, I think it's nice that we try to, um, or I at least try to understand those visions of everybody and see, you know, where we can find some kind of common ground. Then I think it helps a bit mm -hmm. in the, in every context. Being academic is practically about being very argumentative. You mm -hmm. know, we just have to discuss. So we are all in the community of, you know, we all agree to disagree. I think it's a very healthy environment where we just debate that, okay, this is what I've seen. This is what I think. What do you think? And then, then the other person says, no, this is what I know from another context. And then I don't agree with you. But that point is interesting. So we can find a way to um, suggest how to, for example, improve development project. Or we can't change the world, but then we can actually keep on trying to change the world. And then that's not a bad thing, I think. You see what I mean? I do. It's not a bad thing. <laughs> it's better than the nothing that exactly. I do. Exactly. <laughs> no, I mean, it's better than nothing. Yeah, that's maybe we, we are just... At the very least, it's better than nothing. Yeah, we just have to be modest. At the same time, yeah, we just keep on saying that, yeah, something is not quite right. So then we... I mean, if we think something is not quite right, something is not quite right. Yeah. Right? I read somewhere, I think it was by Lauren Berland. She wrote something uh, like, justice is a lack that nobody feels frustration or something like that, you know? <laughs> wow. <laughs> and I think it's good to think like that. If somebody is frustrated or feeling very unhappy, something is not right. So we just have to think about why not, yeah. what, what, why this happened. So sometimes just listening to one person's story can reveal really a lot of things of the country or of the situation in the, in the, in the world. So sometimes I, I actually do that, just talk to one you know, old woman in a village and then try to find out why, yeah. why, why things are not quite okay according to her. Yeah, well, yeah. What's her big source of frustration? Her biggest source yeah. of frustration then, on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, and then that reveals a lot of things. Also, I'm actually trying to understand how industry works nowadays. You know, the logic of big company or big yeah, what happens in a boardroom kind of sure. situation? Because we are not very good at it. We are very good at going to farmers or you know communities mm -hmm. or because that's what you feel sympathize sure. with. But nowadays, I'm kind of feeling that it is important. But then, you know, with this knowledge, maybe I should try to understand how to really talk to the powerful. It's going to be a tough one, I yeah. think. <laughs> it's a whole different, whole different uh, level of humanity. Yes. Have you heard any of this stuff about a lot of, again, this is me being armchair guy, hmm. <laughs> a lot of high-end uh, business people, mm -hmm. they say, have the same characteristics as uh, serial killers <laughs> like to to be you know i don't want to condemn all of the business people of the world but <laughs> to be a, a high achieving member of one of these boards you sort of have to be able to just not feel right and i see that that's one of the characteristics that right. a lot of these ceos have it's yeah the guy he, he's on um 
I don't know, I've heard interviews with him a lot on podcasts and stuff. I think he wrote a book called The Psychopath Test or about the psychopath test. And it's about stuff like that. Oh, wow. And Interesting. I didn't read the book. I heard him pitching the book a million times on, oh, on wow. in different places. Huh. I, I'm going to read the book. <laughs> I'm going to read the book. Yeah. <laughs> How, how do you feel about the term success? Do you feel like a successful person? You know, you, you are fighting the fight. You're actually doing something. To, to me, that is successful. Whether you're actually changing in an industry, you're, you're actually making efforts, which is about 1,000 times more than most people in the world. But also me, your approach seems to be genuine and, and, and balanced and things are in perspective. Yeah, but the bottom line is, like, well, I think I'm successful in the sense that I, I'm doing what I, I'm curious about. Or yeah. I'm, I'm, I think I, I, I want to continue looking into those kind of dilemmas yeah. of the, what we face, no? We want to make the world a sustainable place, but then uh, have to address the side effects or things that could happen with that. Mm-hmm. Or I've seen it, that happens. So I want to keep on thinking about or writing about or talking about how to think about this sort of sacrifice-free, sustainable world. Mm-hmm. And I teach that also with the students at the, you know, to, to young younger generation i don't feel i'm old but then uh, yeah now now if i well, see well they're very like, young so they are very young <laughs> so i have to uh, also start talking to those those big children to kind of for them to become more sensitive also those issues yeah because sometimes they come with a very genuine idea that yeah like i'm going to stop I, i'm vegetarian vegan mm-hmm. uh, i'm doing very good for the world yeah yeah, and to me, it's already a bit too one-sided, yeah. you know? It's okay. like I have you thought about farmers who've been, you know, thinking about their own way of sustaining the world uh-huh. by producing good meat. But then you can't deny one thing like that. And, and then we start talking about those issues or I personally hate all these big windmills I think it is a kind of pollution to the landscape but then you know okay. the, the Netherlands is pushing so much for the renewables yeah no for real and, I, I uh, actually like the windmills though I have to say but I, th- and that, the traditional ones I like but the, yeah. those industrial ones you like yeah I like seeing the fields of them I think that it looks cool I like the concept that said I think that if I lived very close to a wind farm I would not be happy <laughs> Yeah, so I got all like a lot of students to do research yeah. in the neighborhood of those uh, wind uh, windmills and solar farms, and you know how they think about the yeah. The, the, because, it's great as long as you don't live there. <laughs> yeah, because now that uh, you know my students cannot travel very easily, so then uh, you know we started to do field work in the Netherlands, and I'm starting to find also very interesting all those issues. So that what I want to say is, yeah, my daily life is practically that I want to think about it for myself, but then also for educating, you know, younger people to um, to go out the field and, you know, yeah. in your neighborhood, you know, something is happening. Then That's you key, though, right? Yeah. You have to create the next, yeah. the next, the next group. Yeah. So in that sense, I'm, I have an infrastructure to do it. I'm embedded in a university. I mean, yeah, you can complain, whatever, but in, the, in general... You, you can always to, complain, <laughs> yeah, but in, the, in general, <laughs> the university is a good uh, environment for me to do this, all yeah. this. And, uh, yeah, I have good... Position there, which means I can do what I want to do. I can see how that would be the case. 
Do you see the fruits of your labors? Are these, are your students actually going out and doing similar field work? Is this the kind of thing that people who, when, when they go in to study it, are they just going because they have to go to college? Like I went, when I went to college, I just went because I had to go. <laughs> like it was just expected and I went because that's what people did. Are, are these people actually integrating the systems and the concepts into their lives? And are they going and doing field work or are they working in some other capacity to spread the word, as it were? Even if one out of hundred students does that, yeah. I think I find it already very success. So if it's, I mean, it's impossible to sensitize all of them, but then always there is one or two who get very excited mm -hmm. about the research or the lectures I give or always every year I, f I have one or two students who want to uh, keep on informing me what they are doing and chat about their job or whatever. I, I find that always very good. That so, is cool. Yeah. So I'm I'm not that ambitious in that sense. I'm not saying that I can change everybody's mind, but then if one or two persons get excited, then I think it's good. I think it's good too. Mm -hmm. Master students always have to do their thesis research anyway, so then they, mm -hmm. you know, they have more chances of getting sensitized in the process sure. than, because they do need to do a field work in their curriculum. Then there are more chances that they think about it at least. By teach students in Utrecht, we try to pair them with the students from those countries. Okay. So that they can actually work together. Mm -hmm. So curriculum-wise, I cannot really influence, but then we try to, you know, establish exchange more often or, you know, doing field work together. Yeah. So that our students can also learn from what the students in that country do. So in that sense, I think we can influence. And at the European level, there are kind of scholarship programs for you know students from those countries to come to the Netherlands. And oh, take that's, that's pretty cool, right? So every year we apply, actually, uh, now uh, it's been for Ghana and Indonesia that we've been receiving some students. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I want to continue with that. I have a new project starting in Indonesia. Those are also kind of coupled with education programs that our Indonesian partners mm -hmm. have their own universities and mobilize the students to do research with us. So that also a kind of new, let's say, a innovation that we want to propose. But then it's always a lot of work, actually, those things, mm -hmm. you know, the kind of institutionally... But yeah, well, idea is to involve uh, students in the kind of both ends. Sure, but that's what you were talking about, the exchange of ideas. Yeah, it's yeah. get their perspective and you have your perspective. It's refreshing for them to hear someone right. looking from the outside. Yeah. It's refreshing for you to hear someone who's actually on the inside. Yeah, That's a win-win. It's a bit also we, will, we really have to uh, avoid or I want to avoid the situation where, you know, only rich European uh -huh. or Japanese, in my case, uh, researcher comes to poor countries and, yeah. you know, like uh, do <laughs> research and then go back to a comfortable situation yeah. where the, to write about suffering of others. Yes. I mean, that's the reality. It is the reality. <laughs> but we want at least to make it conscious that we know it. Yeah. We know the privilege we're in. Yeah. And talk about it with the people there, so then they can also do what they want to do in, within their context. And we try to, for example, the other kind of scholarship that we try to get to the students there, and at least they can 
also do the reverse. They can come, yeah. you know, they do their research in the Netherlands. You know, you know it can be also fun for them. Yeah. Well, yeah, of course. Yeah, that's great. I mean, yeah. that's for me, at least when I was a student, that was yeah. the best thing. I, I came here. Yeah. And so it's a bit like that, that, that we try to um, facilitate. How's life? Are you feeling good about things? Are you going stir-crazy with COVID? For me, the most fun part of my job is to go to the field, and this part is being yeah. uh, severe. So this is tough. So I'm hoping that the whole world becomes a little bit easier to visit each other. I hope so, too. I mean, yeah, we've mastered a lot of this online life, I think, in the two years. but it went fast. I'm just not super happy about it. Uh, I don't like it either. But you know, because everyone tries to be positive about it. Well, now we can have a lecture from, you know, somebody somewhere else, or we can be anywhere actually online. But uh, it's different. It is different. It's just very different. I just, I think it's fatiguing. It's tiresome. Yeah. I... Yeah. But the other thing is, yeah, I don't know. Always I considered, for example, Netherlands as just a base where I work, but yeah. not paying much attention to my surroundings or what's happening. Out of necessity, I started to really observe what's happening in the Netherlands or oh. Germany or around here. Yeah. As I said, you know, that I send students to do some field work around here. It's okay. You know, we yeah. can we can observe perhaps about the same thing or another different things, but we call it interesting things around here right. also. So in that sense, I'm discovering a new possibilities or new ways of thinking about development that, you know, development is not only in those developing no, no, countries. Every, we're but, all developing. Know, uh, we are I'm all, developing yeah, right now. Yeah, exactly. In, in everywhere in a different, different ways and everywhere is also connected. So I find that also interesting to keep on thinking about. Yeah. In that sense, yes. I'm not too happy, but then at the same time, um, I'm not too uh, depressed or something. You know, some, what you just said reminded me of a couple, I can't remember if it was before COVID or during COVID. It was like a day or a week. Farmers went on strike. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. You should send your students yeah, to go yeah. work with yeah, them yeah, to yeah, see yeah, what yeah. the deal is yeah. because this can be resolved with yeah. communication. Yeah, yeah. We have the technology. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's also exactly the same kind of problems, right? It's yeah. Nitrogen it's just along. on a different scale. Yeah. But it's also about the climate change. It's about how the farmers should conform to the new it, norm. Exactly. And it, uh, it's it's them be like they they don't want to make big changes. They're accustomed to the way things work yeah. or government subsidies or whatever. Yeah. But you know, it, it'd be nice to change things up, make it a little bit better. So it's yeah, good for them the and way, for everybody. Yeah. Like it it doesn't have to be bad for them. Yeah. It just yeah, but I think that's the the problem, right? Because then the communication from the government or from the this kind of new framework imposed on the farmer, or at least the farmers felt that way. Yeah. Then. There was no perhaps meaningful dialogue between them. Not who's doing it and how is it being handled? I... Yeah, there are lots of mechanisms in between, but I think the bottom line is that the alternatives were not very clear or were not right. very possible. Right, it's right. just always kind of the same problem, I think. So here also, Brazil also, you know, everywhere. Mozambique. It's like, yeah, I mean, okay, you have to change the way you do things. That's the law. 
But then if people don't have the clear alternative that is equally attractive to what they've been doing, right. I mean, they are not going to happily accept the new law. This is where resistance comes from. Yeah, exactly. So that's where we or I want to intervene or my students, I want the, my students to think about how to think differently. You yeah, know? I do. Are we done? I think so, no? I don't know. I think so. Thanks for coming down to my crazy basement. <laughs> yeah, it's been fun. It's actually very nice. It's, it's like, yeah, it's kind of comfortable. I can't keep on talking. That was Kay. She's doing good work, bringing about incremental change, or at least understanding. I really liked hearing about her field work and also about the balanced approach required for what she does. There's no, this is objectively wrong, and there's no calling people evil and stuff like that. I've been guilty of calling a few people evil in my day, but I don't really believe it most most of the time. Maybe I should go back to school and become one of Kay's students. You and I both know that I'm not going to do that. First of all, I don't want to go to Utrecht every day. But if I did, it sounds like the skills and concepts that she's teaching could be applied to a wide range of situations. Thanks for being on the show, Kay. We'll talk soon. And thank you for listening to Feel Free to Deviate. I really appreciate your time, and I hope you like what you're hearing. Um, does anybody actually listen to the end-of-show wrap-up? Well, I hope you do, because I'm taking the time to record it, but also because this is where you get to hear about my social links and stuff like that. Go to feelfreetodeviate.com for all the things that websites have, and follow me on Instagram at feelfreetodeviate. There are lots of lovely and fun promotional clips for you to like and share and comment on. Go for it. You're going to love it. Special thanks to Ed Mubarak. If you need audio wizardry, go to boomkas.com. That's B-O-O-M-K-A-A-S.com. Ask for Ed, and he will hook you up. I'm not sure who is up next. The next episode may be a surprise deviation from the standard format, or it may be an interview. Wait and see. You'll be slightly more surprised than I will be. Thanks again for listening. And I will be back in two weeks. Keep going. Do not quit. If you need to cry, that's okay. But don't let the bastards keep you down. Goodbye.